what's up beautiful people welcome back to uh the free game productions i have my friend here handsome dan dan lerman um he's an intelligence ex expert phd in, in cognitive science and the world's top private tutor he actually i'm the one that dropped the ball but he's gonna teach me and i'm gonna retake my sats um at some point hell this, yeah this has been it's a public commitment Good. It, it, now, now I'm going to see some follow through. That's it, great. It is a public commitment. So one of the things Dan can do is he can help you increase your intelligence. Yes. Um, how can you help people increase intelligence? Yeah. Um, it's a really good question. And I probably should have prepared a specific answer. There, there are a couple things that come to mind. Um, I think it would be good to ask yourself what intelligence you're interested in. Okay. What kind of intelligences are there? Huh. Uh, the one that I kind of specialize in is, is traditional intelligence, the one that is measured by IQ, the one that generally is related to reading, writing, math, and maybe some processing speed in there. Before we go into that, what are the other types too? Yeah. Um, there's a lot that, you know, Howard Gardner's book, frames of mind comes to mind he talks about multiple intelligences and people love the, you know the theory of multiple intelligences and i think he's got eight of them in there i don't remember them offhand but there's like musical and kinesthetic and athletic and i don't know if you think about the people that you know of that are gifted in any domain i think you could call those intelligences how um do you know the definition of intelligence um not really no my guess would be it'd be something about like an ability to problem solve or figure something out. Yeah, that feels right. Um, that feels right. I think there's definitely a comparative element to it. To describe someone as intelligent, they have to be better than most people or like highly intelligent. So that's maybe something I'd throw in there. Okay. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, well, let's take this conversation wherever you want to go. I think I can definitely help people get more intelligent in the classical intelligence realm and okay. make them feel more confident. Like, confidence is such a big part of this, Luke. Like, if you feel confident in your brain, which is what I really help people do, uh, your whole world opens up. So, like a self-fulfilling prophecy of the mind. Yeah, oh, tremendously. Big part of what I do is help people break through the barriers that they've set for themselves. They don't, they don't think they're smart. They've gone to traditional schools and they've been in classrooms where they're told they're not that smart. And I help them, uh, destroy that belief. There's, um, I wish I could remember the name. I should have remembered the name of the study, but there was some researcher that did a study and they went into, um, I want to say it was an elementary school and they told that, let's just say hypothetically, those of you that are familiar with it, I'm sorry if I bastardize this a little bit, but they go into, we'll say kindergarten and they tell the school that we'll say 15 of the students are geniuses and they tell the school that 15 of the students are just imbeciles and they completely randomized it. The 15 that they told the school were geniuses by the time they graduated were all like accelerating at a genius level and the one that they told were imbeciles were all way behind. Yeah, so good. So much from that. First of all, I got to say, you know, <laughs> the word imbecile, as well as the word moron, and there's one other one that might come to me in a second. These are all words that were created by intelligence psychologists. So they would measure people on IQ tests back in like the early 1900s when these were created. And if you were a standard deviation below the norm, you were an imbecile. If you were two standard deviations below the norm, you were a moron. And I think the third one was idiot. I, you guys can double check me online. But uh, so the words imbecile, moron, and idiot were scientific terms like describing people's intelligence levels. And now we just call everyone an idiot and an imbecile and a moron. You, no, you that, use that word. No, no, I, I used it because that was the word that they used. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing that popped up for me, I do, you know, I've had, I've done well in traditional schools. I've got, you know, gotten really good grades, gone to fancy schools, whatever. And I do think one of the thing I think about like how that happened. One of the things my parents 
definitely did was they made me feel like a genius. I don't know if it was true or not, but they definitely made me feel that way over and over again. And I think they, my mom, I remember her using that word a lot. And I have a daughter now who's one year old and my mom is already calling her a genius. That's beautiful. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't know if there's a term of it. We'll call it the Kanye West effect. Yeah. Where you just... Swagger. Yeah, you just refuse yeah. to believe otherwise. Um, there's so, there's something there that's like, mon- like especially around intelligence, it's, it's amazingly powerful to have confidence in your cognitive abilities. That's a... I like that term, confidence in the cognitive abilities. Yeah, cognitive confidence. Okay. So cognitive confidence is a huge determining factor. Would that be similar to like something like self-efficacy? Huh. And by self-efficacy, I'm thinking of like um, a business psychology term I learned. Yeah. Where it's your belief and the ability to get it done causes you to get it done. Yeah. And I think of that in sports all the time. Yeah. I think self-efficacy is broader and cognitive confidence is specifically with the, like your mental abilities. You could have self-efficacy that you're going to run a marathon, it seems like, right? Yeah. Um, so I think they're, they're related. Maybe cognitive confidence is specifically like learning or doing things with your mind. Okay, so how do you help people increase their cognitive confidence? So the main way, like my my main business comes from private tutoring. I get flown all over the world to tutor people privately. I charge $1,250 an hour to do that. And the reason people pay that is because I, I'm able to do this really effectively. And usually... Uh, there's a whole range of things I see, but the, like the average kid nowadays uh, has no cognitive confidence, never reads, loves TikTok, and has no interests, like no passions. Like, what do you do on weekends? I hang out with my friends. What are you into? Like, maybe sports, but you like sometimes like nothing but hanging out with my friends. So, how do you foster cognitive confidence in someone? Uh, the first step is I find out what they love. What they're passionate about. I'm going to write this down for me and Danielle. Hell yeah. So, I don't know. Can we play with... Yeah, yeah. Can we talk about... Like, would you be open to, to doing something that I would do in a session? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, like, typical weekend, Luke. What are you doing? Um, Saturday, probably a mushroom ceremony. Nice. Friday, I'm going to work early. We have our little meetings. Um, after the meeting, I usually run to the gym. And then I come back to the office try to touch base with, with my people, come home and then smoke, meditate, relax, watch a movie with Danielle, um, read Fridays. I actually like to go to sleep early. Okay, cool. That's pretty good. I'm hearing a lot in there and you, you <laughs> you're way more active and accomplished than a lot of the, you know, 16 year olds I work with, but let's, um, let's do go with mushrooms. Okay. Um, you're interested in mushrooms. Yep. Have you read about them at all? Yes. What have you read? Um, a bunch of academic research in the, the AMA, um, a bunch of medical research, and then um, really it's all kind of, and then um, some actually like history, like uh, esoteric religious books. And there's a book called Psychedelic Gospels, which is super cool. I actually have it upstairs. Saw it. Yeah. Um, I have so much books on them and I like reading about them so that if I speak to somebody who thinks of it the way that it's been portrayed in the media... I'm able to factually explain my positions. Um, they're not going to understand my experiential experience, like, right? Like, hey, I connected with God at a different, like, how, how do you explain that? <laughs> but I can be like, hey, you know, it actually improves your hearing, your senses, your brain speed, your, um, your neurons. It smooths out your brain and helps get rid of depressing thoughts like fMRIs have shown. Um, so I like to use, like, that type of stuff. Yeah, and how much are you getting paid to do this type of research work reading nothing zero good okay great you're an amazing like finished product of what someone look looks like after they work with me if it goes well you know um you your cognitive confidence with mushrooms is very high like if an article came out you'd read it you'd learn about it sick most kids i work with they're, they're like blank slates they're like i want to go into business have you ever read anything about business uh, yeah, yeah. No, well, I know you have, but they're kind of like, <laughs> no, <laughs> and, and they feel ashamed about it. So I get them into what they're, they're, you know, connected to what fuels them. What, and I can't give that to them. We go in whatever different direction they want to go in. And then I get them reading great stuff, like mind expanding stuff 
stuff that's challenging, complex ideas in that arena. And then little by little, they build towards what you are, which is an incredibly confident learner. Like it's you're exactly what I'm aiming for. Confidence is definitely not something I lack. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe I should call you in and have you talk to some of my kids. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, So I thought, you know, ideally I'm trying to transform people into confident learners in whatever they, they love. A big part of that is getting them reading. I'm a big believer in reading. Almost everyone I work with is not a big reader. And I have to, like, go into the weeds show them text and and tell them exactly what should be going through their mind to enjoy reading and do it effectively. Okay, so I'm an avid reader. Actually, Dan runs a book club. That's awesome. I'm trying to get him to make it like a public thing. So hopefully you guys see Learning with Lerman soon. Learning but, with Lerman. Um, on a side note, we'll pretend I'm not an avid reader and we haven't done this. Let's say I want to read a book about physics and how the world is a byproduct of consciousness. Cool. How would I, how would you get me to go into it? And then do, would you do book reviews? How would you, how would you go about that? Yeah. I mean, I've read a lot of stuff, so I have a lot of introductory articles. I gotta say it's pretty rare that I get a 16 or 17 year old who's like really interested in physics. But what I'd probably do is go like run a Google scholar search, like run an academic article search for something cool or find, um, I really like the New York review of books. They're like 10 page articles that are highbrow and challenging and we'd read it together. The New York review of books, New York review of books. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like any article that's like three to ten pages, that's kind of where we'd start. My, one of my favorites that I think you would love, actually, uh, do you know who David Foster Wallace is or was? I know the name, but I don't know why. a famous book called Infinite Jest, and he's kind of this unbelievable modern writer. He actually committed suicide about ten years ago, and he wrote this article called Consider the Lobster. And I love starting people on that because... Um, You can get this article online. The first page, you think it's about this lobster festival in Maine, this like hokey, obese lobster festival in Maine. You're like, what the hell's going on here? Why am I reading this? And by the end, um, it's not what you expect. And a lot of times people read this article with me and they're like, this is the first thing I've ever read that I've liked. And then that opens up a can of work, you know, like they start reading things and start liking it and they get smarter, they get more confident. Their test scores usually go up as a byproduct. So that's generally how it works. I, um, I heard Jim Rohn, who's one of my favorites. He spoke about, I think it was Zig Ziglar actually, but um, they spoke about how improved vocabulary yeah. correlates completely with improved finances, like in all these different things. Do you go into vocabulary a lot? Yeah. Um, I don't drill vocabulary, but it's a byproduct of reading good stuff. So like when I keep, when I keep saying like, you got to read good stuff. Like I love Harry Potter. I don't think reading Harry Potter is going to make you smarter. I think you'll have a blast. Shots fired, Danielle. I'm so sorry, Danielle. I, that's why I avoided eye contact. The, the look she's giving me. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's a blast. But um, one of the things I think it makes something like mind expanding when you read it is the vocabulary and the complexity of ideas. So one of the oldest psychological tests in the world is a vocabulary test. If you give someone like 10 vocabulary words and if you see if you see how many of the 10 they know, it's not perfectly correlated to intelligence, but it's a good predictor of how quote unquote intelligent someone is. So that's why the SAT back when we were taking it had vocabulary words. There were like those analogies. Yeah, if you're, yeah. I don't know if you remember those. Um, those are no longer on the test, but vocabulary is tested in kind of more subtle ways. So yes, vocabulary is part of being intelligent. Yes, reading will make your vocabulary go through the roof. I personally think drilling index cards, ah, that's kind of boring and a waste of time in my opinion. Do you, um, do you touch on etymology at all? I love etymology. I've actually developed a love of etymology. I love it. Can, can we? Do you have a favorite word? Um, the first word that popped to my mind is paradox. Okay. Do you know the etymology? No. I don't know if I do either. I my favorite word is calipigian. Do you know that word? 
No. Calipigian, the prefix Cali, like beautiful, like Cali, the name Cali from Greek. And pigeon means buttocks. So Calipigian means having a nicely shaped ass. Nice. Isn't that nice that there's a word for that? <laughs> Dude, I, I love it. I love um I love just going back and seeing what the original meaning was and how it shaped over time. Yeah. You have an example? Um the word create. Oh yeah. So, oh, tell me about that. So it goes to creer, um, or creare in, in Latin. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. But in in Spanish it's still C R E A R. Um, and that means to think to believe, to create in mm. Spanish. Sick. Right? And you remove the R and you put T-E and you have create. But it's interesting, right? So first you have to think it, then you have to believe it, and then you can create it. Sick. I love that. I'm, I, uh, I teach a class on creativity at Columbia, and I am going to use that it's, it's <laughs> on cool. day one. That's day one. That's cool. Yeah, that's, yeah. Dude, that's so cool. Um, I, I'd love to take that class with Professor Lerman. Mm-hmm. Um and then another one is manifest, and it's like Manny and festival. Like festival, and what's what's Manny? Um, shoot, what is it? Like I always think of man as like I can't even think now, but it's like uh, man, like like with your hands. Is yeah, like manicure. That makes sense. Oh yeah, with your hands. So, mano, mano hands. Yeah. Hand. Um, mano. I don't know that one for sure. I pull my phone out and look at it up, the etymology, but I know fest, like the festival, like the festivus. Yeah. So the way I think of it is like you're creating happily. And oh, often yeah. when you manifest, it's, there's an energy. Yeah. In order to like, my opinion, it's like the real manifesting is there's a, a belief and efficacy to it. And it's like your belief or that festival, that, that high energy is what helps create the manifestation. I love it. Yeah. That's a great one. What a cool word. And then, um, this was last weekend, I was just we were just at Aubrey Marcus's thing, and Vilana Marcus, her thing, uh, we were speaking about magic, which she was like, magic is real to the degree that you believe it. Yeah. And I think that that's such a powerful reality. So like, um, the word, so there's a famous Bible verse um, in, in the New Testament, like, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I reference this all the time on this particular podcast. <laughs> but the word repent is written as metanoia, which would, which is like change your way of thinking. Yeah. Alter your perception, thinking about thinking. So in other words, alter your thinking. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. They see, mm. but they don't see. They hear, but they don't hear. So it's like in some ways like an alternate to paranoia, which is like thinking of like you're kind of negative in your head. Metanoia would be like freeing yourself. The opposite from... of paranoia would be pronoia. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. And metanoia is kind of... Like thinking about thinking, but it's the way that they interpret it is like altered. Because meta is like the thing of itself. Yeah. Um, but metanoia would be like altered perception. Love it. Cool. We're deep in the words here. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I could do a whole podcast on this all the time. I find myself thinking about words more often in my in my old age than, than I used to. Do you think primarily in words or... Hmm. What's your thought? My process, my word, or my thought process is probably like ninety percent or more in words. In words, I think I'm more images. I don't you. You don't think in images, unless it's like a vision. No. What about when you're reading something? Are you? What's going through your mind? No. And I thought everybody thought the way I did until grad school. Yeah. And I, honestly, because of words, um, I was reading about an autistic guy, John Elder Robinson, who made like the first electric guitar and stuff. And mm-hmm. he has a book called look into my eyes uh-huh. or look me in my eyes. Um, and when I was reading that, I had, I went to Paris right after. And the way they say nice to meet you is enchanté, enchanté, which enchanted. is you're enchanting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, Oh my God, it's so much nicer than nice to meet you. <laughs> and then that got me going down this whole rabbit hole. And, um, in it, I read the autistic book on, or the, the book on autism. And then I watched Temple about Temple Grandin. Yeah. And I realized that she doesn't think in words. Mm. She completely thought in pictures and it blew my fucking mind. Mm. Um, and I emailed a proposal to a cognitive professor at Syracuse University. And it was basically like a way to maybe help autistic people communicate better would be help them program their mind to think more in words. Huh. But it's funny that you think primarily in images and you're so articulate and you write books. and Yeah, you know, like Cognitive Science 101. Have you heard of the World Memory Championships? 
Um, I've heard of them. I'm unfamiliar. Yeah, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's like the Olympics for the mind. And this guy named Josh Fuller uh, wrote a book called Moonwalking with Einstein, which I love. I highly recommend. He was a journalist that became a memory athlete. And there's some tricks you can use to improve your memory right away. And one of them is thinking in images. Have you heard of the term memory palace? Um, is that where you create like a house? Yeah. Um, I'm relatively familiar, but yeah, the very basic example is let's say you want to memorize the first, however many digits of pi, like, um, visualize your childhood home and on the door is a three and then you open the door and then on the left you see like a wooden table and there's a 14 and then you go forward from that table and there's a 15 and then um, you look to the right and there's a tiger and there's like a 962 on the tiger and I'm probably breaking some of the rules and not you know but whatever so you go and see the door and what do you remember what's on the door a three. Yeah, and then the first table on the left. I'm just going to say one. I wasn't. It was a one four. If you close your eyes, I thought you were doing it. But yeah. yeah, so if you actually go through that exercise and visualize it, you can memorize like thousands of digits of pi. I was, what was funny is I closed my eyes and was trying to picture my house and I'd like. You got caught up in the house. No, I, I realized even that is hard for me. It's hard for you. Yeah. Yeah. Which is weird because I have a really good memory. Yeah. You know, people have different minds. Like, this is one trick that generally seems to work. Like, to actually visualize something. And if anyone's listening and they're like, I don't really read much, but I'd like to read, the number one tip I give is to tap into this this muscle. And again, this might not work for you. No, no. I, it's something I'm sure I could develop. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're reading something you really want to be having an experience. I, I like to start with poetry, actually. I um, sometimes do articles. I sometimes read short poems with my students. Um, one that I'm loving lately is called A Noiseless Patient Spider by Walt Whitman. It's about feeling alone in the universe. It's really cool. Two paragraphs. And you can have a profound experience reading these two paragraphs if you visualize and personalize it and make it about your life. So... A lot, I think a lot of people don't like reading because they haven't been taught to enjoy it. And the visualizing and tying it to your own life, those are two cognitive tools that I teach that let people enjoy the experience. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. My, what happens to me, visualizations, um, which is funny too, because obviously I'm a huge believer in sacred plants mm -hmm. um, and entheogens. So that's a really cool etymology, entheogen is like the real term for psychedelic. We've now stopped using the word, but it's entheos, um, the God within. God within, wow. Yeah, so like mushrooms, ayahuasca, stuff like that are classified as entheogenic plants. Cool. Um, the God within. On those, I don't really get visuals. Yeah. I get inner knowings. Sick. <laughs> but like a lot of people get visuals and i think it probably has to do with the way that you think your the mm -hmm. way your messages primarily come in but i would like to learn how to do that more because i'm sure that would help me with meditation yeah a couple things to like strengthen that idea that there there is a strong visual muscle in your brain you know when did we learn to speak as a species like i don't know i don't actually know the answer to that question but call it a million years ago a couple million years ago and we've been evolving for billions of years so 99.9% .9 of our brain evolution is nonverbal the verbal evolution is really pretty recent right uh, on top of that I have a one-year-old daughter who doesn't speak but man she's definitely conscious and she's thinking and putting ideas together I can watch it happen so there's certainly something to your consciousness that's really strong that's nonverbal yeah, and, and again, what's interesting is when I do get some profound visions, they seem so important to me because I don't normally think that way. Yeah. So it's like um, the laws of power are basically a basic rule of economics, the law of scarcity. Yeah, yeah. So it becomes more valuable to me. Because it doesn't happen often. Yeah, but I would yeah. love to be able to think more visually. Yeah. I'm sure you could. I'm sure I could. Yeah. I'm going to... You got a powerful brain, man. I'm going to 
get in touch with you on that. Yeah. So let, let's say let's say I were to hire you for that. Why would I pay twelve fifty an hour to hire you for that? Yeah. Or is that's not technical? I don't know. Well, the value. I don't know. Imagine most of the people I work with have a ton of money, and you know, ten, twenty, thirty, forty grand is is a drop in the bucket for them. And imagine you have a kid who's probably 15, 16, 17 years old and a little bit lost and not confident in their mind. Right. There's no price you can put on that. It's like, yeah, the, I, I've had parents call me crying tears of joy because their kid brought a Kurt Vonnegut book to the beach. And I, I'm not one to say whether that's valuable to you or not. I'm telling you, <laughs> you have a two month wait list. I make a lot of money doing this. It is valuable to a lot of people to have their kids awaken intellectually. That's, that's so awesome. Um, do you have any favorite success stories? Yeah. Um, I do. I'd say my top story that I think about most, it was the most, it was one of the most challenging people I've ever worked with. And I won't use, real names here, but it was a 10th grade girl at an elite, very famous New York City private school, private school that a lot of celebrities send their kids to. And she was in 10th grade. And I met with her for the first time. Her parents told me she was dyslexic. And I asked her to read this New York Times article out loud. And she couldn't get through more than five words without choking up. And she eventually started crying. She couldn't read the article out loud and it was not a hard article could she read she could read she says she could kind of read her act score was a 16 uh out of 36 i think that's like fifth percentile or something like that so it was really low and the thing that i saw in her that gave me faith we could we could have a good result like at at the end of the day was she was incredibly driven really wanted to be a great reader. A lot of her classmates were great readers. She was not. And she really wanted to go to a good university. And I didn't give her that drive. She came to me with the drive. So we worked for a year and a half. Her ACT score went up from a 16 to a 35, which is 99th percentile, near perfect score. And there were a lot of tough conversations, a lot of tears on both sides throughout, but we busted through a huge like self-defeating belief that she could not read because someone told her she was dyslexic and we had a lot of time to make up for. You know, she was 15 and basically had never read a book. That's so crazy. Yeah. Um so she went from bottom 5% to top 1%. Top 1%. Yeah. Yeah. How long did that take? A year and a half. So that's going to be worth every penny to the parents. Yeah. I mean, it was expensive, but I, they were very, very happy. Uh, we were all happy. We went out to dinner. We celebrated. We cried. We laughed. We drank some really good wine. It was great. Um, and I loved it. It was an amazing transformational experience. So I usually don't work with people for that long. It's usually two to six months, depending on where people are starting. But that was, I, I love that one. I poured my soul into that one. And, um, Towards the end of it, I actually stopped charging them because I, I, you know, they paid me enough money, and I felt really committed to seeing it through. What school did she end up going to? Uh, what college did she go to? She went to Brown. So like a really good school. Yeah, she went to Brown, which I think was good. She was very, very creative thinker, very outside the box, and we got her reading, and yeah, I think it helped. I saw something recently as well. Um, a NASA scientist did a research and children, 98% of children start off classified as geniuses. And then they would go back in and they would check on the children. And each year it would be dramatically less. And by the time they graduated high school, 2% were classified as geniuses. Yeah. I, you know, my thinking, I actually just taught a class on this yesterday. That, okay. um, we did a creativity class. We covered... Who did we cover? We, we talked about Maslow and Rogers. Do you remember who did that? NASA Rollo research? May. No, I don't remember who did that. But there's there's a lot of like business like um, similar stuff that does things like it takes kindergartners and asks them to make towers out of marshmallows and toothpicks, 
And the kindergartners are like way more creative and faster than the MBA, MBA students who are like at Harvard Business School or whatever. Uh, you know, I think it's because kids spend a lot of time putting toothpicks and marshmallows together and it's not something that's like challenging. So I think a lot of that research asks kids to do kid-like tasks. And I think, I don't want to, I don't love the idea of like, you were smarter when you were a kid. Society has ruined you. You know, do that same research with like making a business plan. <laughs> and, and those kindergartners don't know what to do. So I, I like the idea that there is this inner creative genius in you. I think the idea that you were better than has to be taken with a grain of salt. And like specifically that body of research, I've never seen anything where a kid is doing a complex task and performing it better than an adult. I mean, that, that kind of ties into like in physics, like the uncertainty principle and um, Schrodinger's cat. Yeah. So like Schrodinger's cat, like everything is all things until it's observed. Yeah. Um, how would, and then with the uncertainty principle, like the observer always affects things. So with that being said, how is intelligence measured? Like how would that, because um, obviously the way it's measured affects what it is. Yeah. Oh, such a cool connection. I don't know that I'm going to, be able to answer the quantum physics part don't, of don't it. Don't worry about but that. I, but no, I, dude, I lo- I'm actually reading a book um, that talks about Schrodinger right now, and it's just so cool, and I love it. Um, what's it called? It's by Benjamin Labatut, and what happens when you cease to understand the world? That's the name of the book. It's sick. It's like a hundred pages really cool um i have like six books written down yeah i know i I read a lot i read like five or six books at once so if you're doing that don't no no shame no guilt um how do we measure intelligence is something i can definitely answer and dude it's fascinating to me and this is like i'm so passionate about this do you know what's on an iq test i don't think i've ever taken one most people i think like probably nine out of every 10 people i speak to and, and IQ stands for, not to cut you off, but intelligence quotient? Yeah, that's it. Intelligence what does quotient, quotient mean? Um, a quotient, quotient is, comes from the like divisibility. The, the word quotient means you're div, like comparing yourself to other people. You're dividing your ability by the average ability in a population. So that's kind of what you said in the beginning, where intelligence is comparative. Yeah, IQ can't exist unless you compare it to something else. It just can't. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and an average IQ, do you know what the, what number is an average IQ? No, uh, 100? It's 100, yeah. And it's rescaled to be 100 so that the population is rescaled to be 100 every once in a while. So to have geniuses, we got to have dummies. Yeah. There's got to be a spread. It's like to have tall people, we have to have short people. Very interesting. The polarity of it. it has to exist. Otherwise, the t- you know, everyone's the same height. Right, right. Um. One cool fact I'll throw in there. It's called the Flynn effect. It's There's this researcher, James Flynn, who's in New Zealand. He studies IQ generationally. And each generation, generation by generation, this is really surprising to a lot of people, IQ goes up by 5 to 10 points. So we, our generation is smarter than the last generation, which is smarter than the last generation, so on and so forth. Since IQ tests were invented in the early 1900s. But that could go back to what's being measured. Are we making it easier? No, it's no, no, no. Same test. Same test. But uh, So let's say, are we teaching, are we creating a system that gets closer to what we're measuring? Oh, interesting. And maybe losing creativity yeah. and grit and Good. other things? So I think we got to get back to what's actually on yeah, these yeah. tests, right? This is so cool. It blows my mind. Most people don't know. So the most common IQ test in the world is called the Wexler Adult intelligence scale w-a-i-s and there have been five versions of this so the modern one is called the WACE 5 and to get access to one you can't google it it's not on the internet maybe it's on the dark web somewhere but i've looked extensively you cannot get the actual test if you're on the dark web you're probably not looking for intelligence tests (laughs) i mean you never know it's uh but you know why does it make sense to not have this test out there because if you know the test you can control your intelligence you could either game the system and make it seem like you're highly intelligent or really not intelligent you you can game the whole business model of this test is the questions have to be protected 
but I'm in a PhD program at Columbia and there's this testing library where you can actually go and look at the test. So I do that every once in a while. I just love the test and I did it a couple weeks ago. Um, I forget why. I think I was just like <laughs> on campus and had an extra hour and I opened it up and here's some things that are on the test. You can Google and check on Wikipedia exactly the outline of the test. But one thing, one question on the test Here's a question from the actual verified test. Who is the Chancellor of Germany? That's on the test. It's like a facts test. So one part is called, um, it's called like general knowledge. I forget the actual term. It's just facts. It's just like, what is the capital of France? That's a question on the test. So this belief that I really want to shatter this belief. I'm like kind of on a mission to shatter this belief that people are stuck in their intelligence by showing them by any metric, any metric you can come up with, you can improve it. You know, um, the chancellor of Germany at the time the test was created was Angela Merkel. I actually don't, know. I was going to say Merkel. Right. <laughs> there you go. I, should I, have let you answer. I don't know who it is. it's someone else now. And I don't know who it is. So I wouldn't get that point on the IQ test. Um, the capital of France is Paris in case. <laughs> and, um, Another section of the test is vocabulary. What does the word... And that's something you can improve easily. Oh my God, totally, yeah. Um, I have on my phone somewhere the actual questions of the test, but it, 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 the format is, what does the word empathetic mean? What does the word divergent mean? And you get points if you know what the words mean. Do you know the etymology of empathetic? I, I do not, I'm just curious. Pathos is feel I think to pay, th pay and M-E is to like like ecstasy step out so I would guess my guess is to feel outside of oneself so then I wonder why pathetic is mm, pathetic because you said it, I was like huh yeah, empathetic is good but pathetic yeah. is bad English is tricky in that sometimes the roots that sound like they're the roots are not right so I don't I don't actually know but I, I certainly think about that Another version, another section, there are like 10 or so sections on this intelligence test. Another section is just math problems. You know, Luke runs 65 laps per day, but today he ran 15% fewer laps. Actually, it's, I think it's 60 laps per day. Today he ran 15% fewer laps. How many laps did he run? Would that be nine? Nine fewer laps, yeah. Yeah, boy, that was nice, man. So he I'm ran saying, 51 laps, nine fewer laps. Really I did, good. I did 10% of 60 yeah. and then 5%. Great. And that's a teachable skill. If you didn't know that, I could teach that to you in 30 seconds. And now you have that skill. Your IQ literally went up. So I encourage, if you're interested in intelligence, I would just go the Wikipedia page for the Wexler Adult Intelligence Scale will take you through sample questions, not the actual questions, but sample questions of all of them. And you'll see it, there are these little subtests that are certainly coachable and maybe shocking to you about like, you know, what's actually tested for intelligence. So how did um obviously intelligence is a huge thing for you studying cognitive science. Like what brought you into the path of cognitive science? Yeah, it's like, that's basically, and you just wrote a book. Yeah, we'll touch on the book in a moment. But yeah. first, um, why cognitive science, and and how did you get into it? Because I I think I want to go back to school for like physics, sick, music theory, and psychology. Nice. Yeah, I teach in the psychology department. I don't know. I've always been interested in psychology and my own feelings. I think I um, in college like started feeling depressed for the first time and used psychology as a tool to make myself feel better. That's like the real genesis of it. Why intelligence? Do you remember what made you feel depressed? Uh, I was drinking a lot of alcohol. I was in like this quasi fraternity and I was really heavily invested in beer pong and getting really good at it. I got very good, but I was drinking all the time and lost and everything has a cost. Yeah. 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 Um, so probably that, and I wasn't really going to school class much I, I, a whole slew of of things i was not connected to people so all all those things um and i um, does that have a role in depression not being connected with others i think it's tremendously social person, i would imagine and tremendously cognitive i think those two things are, are big components of it like i heard something like if a baby isn't touched a lot when it's born it'll like have 
some kind of abnormalities. Yeah. And like people in isolation, like they wither kind of wither away and die. Yeah. There's this amazing body of research in rats called uh, licking, grooming, arched back nursing. And if you measure the amount of time a mother rat spends with her, her baby rats, uh, licking the rats, grooming them or arched back nursing, like feeding the rats, the more time she spends doing those things, the better off the rats are, the less kind of depressed or anxious or however they measure rat behavior. So that body of research feels very well established and seems to really apply to humans too. There's, um, they did something too with, uh, with beans. They put beans in a bag. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like talking to the beans? Yes. Yeah, talking, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. one, they spoke positively. So I was just speaking to my buddy, Sean, um, whole side topic but he is brilliant um and he was talking about this and when they spoke positive to the beans no fungus no nothing healthy beans spoke negative um a lot of like fungus and they got kind of like sickly yeah and then when they completely ignored the beans they withered away and decayed yeah so like even negative was better than nothing so cool i haven't I haven't read about it, but I've spoken to friends about this research, and I think it's cool. And I think, look, something I'm real, I'm a researcher now. It's a strange thing to say, but I do research, and I'm a published researcher. And I think the power of research is in the story. You know, researchers have to tell stories, and that's an amazing story. I you just know? I love that story. It's a, if you believe that story and it helps you, great, go with it. And I think. I, I hope it's backed by so, like observation and scientific fact, and that's what makes it a scientific story. But really, that connection of stories to research is something that I'm I'm just realizing. I would love to. I know we spoke about it before. I would love to do something with our our mushroom church yeah. and like quote unquote magic and the power of belief and community. Yeah, we'll talk off air on that. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah, maybe we can zoom in. Um, I do. Can I share a mushroom connection? Please, doc. Um, All day. <laughs> the, I think, junior year of college, I read, I was in college, it was probably 2006 or 2007, there's a famous study at Johns Hopkins, which you probably know about, where people took mushrooms and basically felt like they had an incredibly profound experience. Like the Good Friday or something. I think like that was it. It was the Good and Friday I, experiment. I read about it, it was very revolutionary at the time to read an academic article talking about the positive effects of psychotropic drugs. And I read it, and I was in kind of a tough place at the time, and I had a spring break trip planned to Amsterdam. And perfect, uh, perfect, yeah, with my best friends in the world, my high school friends. And we got to Amsterdam. I was very scared to take mushrooms. I'm pretty nervous about drugs in general, and you know, you can cause a lot of damage if you don't. I refer to them as the sacraments or the medicine. Great, let's call them the medicine. Great, I'll use a different word. Uh, I was scared of the medicine, I didn't know anything about dosing. It was tough to find. There's this one site called Arrowid, which you could find out a little bit of info about drugs at the time, but generally, they were like medicine. Yeah, oh, sorry, sorry, medicine uh, at the time. But just, just, I, I feel like it just creates such a different Great. feeling towards it. Totally, yeah. Uh, I, I, would have pre- I didn't expect to go down this path with you, so I would have prepared my vocabulary, no, but we'll no. go medicine. So I, I went to this medicine shop in Amsterdam, and on a whim, I, you know, I was going to the Van Gogh Museum, and I was like, I'm with my best friends in the world. I'm kind of in a low place. Let me try it. And I had, and I'm not recommending this because I feel like maybe, like, it's better to be around professionals when you're using the medicine. And I'm not licensed to give advice on that. But my personal story was I had a profoundly incredible experience that made me feel much better. It made me feel less anxious. It made me feel more certain in my career path. And I think shaped my views on medicines forever. And interestingly, I didn't do another medicine until until I was probably 25 or 26 so seven years thinking about that one experience and not needing to repeat it not having a desire to yeah repeat. yeah it's um they, there's an fMRI they did a study and I was talking about this last night they did a, a placebo group um, where they did an fMRI before and the brain is a physical structure um, when there's depressing thoughts it creates a divot in the I'm sure you're probably familiar with it like creates like a divot in the brain um, almost like a ski slope mm. 
and they did an fMRI they showed that and the people took SSRI so anti-anxiety like antidepressants and then they did one with psilocybin so mushrooms and um, they did an fMRI as well and the people and they gave them the the dose and they sat with the therapist both groups so the SSRI group they had a small like qualitative difference like they um, you know they had some differences in how they thought a little bit no phys- no physiological differences the group with mushrooms huge qualitative difference mm. an acceptance and understanding of whatever was causing those thoughts um, or at least at a deeper level physiologically the brain was repaired can we talk about medicines for a little bit yeah, yeah. I'm talking I'm using that term to apply to mushrooms and illicit medicines ones that are legal but also SSRIs and DRIs the ones that are prescribed throughout the country and throughout the world to treat mental see mental that those are what I call drugs yeah okay got it all right man it's hard to please you man. yeah yeah <laughs> um, you can call them whatever you want yeah I'm fa- I taught a class called psychopharmacology that and, sounds amazing and yeah it should be called drugs you know it's the the, I, the academic version of drugs and I spent some time you know when I'm teaching these classes for the first time I'm learning a ton I'm like really solidifying my thoughts and reading deeply about this stuff and I think the current state of these medicines and drugs it you have to look at the history you have to look at the history to understand what's going on and how people view them and the history really starts with the frontal lobotomy do you know what do you know about lobotomies when they take out part of your brain um they did it for like people that consider it crazy and it just basically sedates them yeah it was the first procedure to treat mental illness and the frontal lobotomy didn't actually remove part of the brain. There was an ice pick that went up through the nose, through, uh, I think it's called the spheroid or the sphygmoid bone. There's a thin bone. And then you get into the brain and the doctor just whips it around. Jesus. The doctor was named uh, Walter Freeman. And he said he practiced it on ra- ripe peaches. That's how he practiced it. And then he would do it on humans. It took seven or eight minutes. And sometimes they felt better. Other times they died of a hemorrhage. Surprise, you had surprise. An ice pick in the brain. <laughs> right. But the demand for this procedure, Luke, was through the roof. Why? So that means that there's always been a mental health crisis. People just weren't allowed to talk to it, talk about it. Yeah. And I think that the fact that people wanted a simple answer to a complex question was evident then. It was ev- evident in this pseudoscience called phrenology, where they measured the, the skull and they're like, oh my God, you are depressed because your skull is and it's, intelligence by the size of the head or the yeah, skull. Yeah, not just intelligence. Your whole They were called faculties. Your whole personality is based on your skullship. It's actually used to um, justify a lot of racist claims as well. Just total, total nonsense, total pseudoscience. But it was incredibly popular. Walt Whitman wrote a poem where he talks about the great sciences. It's like chemistry, biology, phrenology. At the time, it was considered a real science. And I think throughout history, we've you know people have always struggled mentally at points it's part of the human experience and they want simple answers they want a seven minute procedure to make me feel better they want a pill that's going to make me feel better and i think what's being sold currently makes a lot of sense like an ssri here's a pill that'll make you feel better and by the way it's expensive and it'll make a lot of people rich but certainly it'll make you feel better watch this commercial about and it's not new to see people flocking to solutions that don't necessarily work. Now, I have to say, I, I do believe in psychotropic drugs like SSRIs and antipsychotics in certain situations. If someone's having a psychotic break and you need to turn it off, like stop them from hallucinating, we have drugs that can do that, antipsychotic drugs, and they're incredibly valuable and they save people's lives. I think if people are suicidal, I've, I've heard cases where SSRIs have helped people. So I'm not, I, I would not personally damn them entirely. I just think the line through the roof, like the demand that's through the roof, I am very skeptical that that's the best way to treat some of the issues people For are dealing sure. with. And I think what you're getting at, and I fully agree, is that like some of the, like mushrooms, some of the other been around for thousands if not millions of years so many other medicines would do as good if not a better job in way less time but pharmaceutical companies don't make money on that so they haven't pushed that yet so in um some of the first cave drawings ever discovered people around mushrooms 
sick. Like like all these different plants. Super Mario World mushrooms. Yeah, yeah. Come on, that's it's great. More important uh, than the caves. But it's um, I mean, everybody wants to be fed. Not everybody wants to learn how to hunt. Bingo. Right and. And then everybody wonders why, not everybody, but a lot of people then wonder why they're not being taken care of better, yeah. right? Because they're not taking care of themselves. Yeah. And and it's just one of those, so I'm, it's, it seems primarily a human thing. It doesn't seem like other animals or plants have that. Yeah. And it's interesting that this isn't new. Because I, I keep thinking of it as being new due to society. Like we've outsourced our, our I'm guilty of it. I don't know where my food comes from. Yeah our water yeah it's a great point i didn't build this house yeah my friend did but i don't know i don't know what i'm doing yeah um my friend didn't build a house he built the basement in the room and stuff um i didn't make this pen this notebook <laughs> like literally nothing yeah we, we just know, we know about such a tiny sliver of our universe and um and because so many people are good natured that we can get away with it mm. but then we i do too i'm like yo they put poison in the food and it's like well i don't care enough to find out how to do it on my own yeah. So yeah. I'm hoping, and I'm hoping to be a part of it, but that there's going to be a movement of people becoming more sovereign. Yeah. I I think that in particular, as we've moved more and more away from the land and into the cities, we get more and more mental imbalances, hormonal imbalances. Like when I was just in the Amazon, granted super small sample size, Nobody there's depressed. Mm. They have basically nothing, but they built it all. They do their own. It's just a simple familial life. Huh. And they're so happy and fulfilled. Yeah. And literally this little eight-year-old boy tells Danielle, um, I, we get rich people here all the time from America in Spanish. Um, <laughs> and they want more and more. And we see them and they get more and more unhappy. <laughs> and then they tell us that they could tell us how to live. This kid's like eight. Yeah. And he goes, and we live in paradise. And he runs up, and I swear to God, hugs and kisses a tree. Wow. And it was just like, right, what? Yeah. It's different. Um, I'm just, you know, tying us back to what we're, Sorry, what it's we're a talking huge about. Tangent. No, I, yeah. I love it. I, I, interesting. I don't know how that, I bet that eight-year-old boy would not score highly on this intelligence test, which our society has created. But is intelligent Probably not, in a different but, way. But dude, he was like a little angel. It was but incredible. massively intelligent. Like, yeah, yeah. So, cool. So it's an interesting thing. So I'm a believer that if something happened, it was supposed to happen. Yeah. That doesn't mean it has to keep happening. But I believe that the world has been the way it's been for the last thousand years. So that the Western world could come up with some of the technologies and the things we have now. Mm. And I believe that there's going to be a migration away from cities back towards land. And I think that's why a lot of these, not a lot, but a couple of big name, high worth individuals are buying up a lot of the land. Yeah. And I think they understand that. Yeah. I think cities are going to fall upon themselves, right? Yeah. Like, especially with AI and technologies, like if you can get things done more efficiently that cost you less with less problems through technology, Unless you do it out of the goodness of your heart. And let's be honest, like, that's not necessarily why you get into business all the time. It's to make money. Why would you keep hiring people that might be unreliable? Yeah. And I think people will be moving back to land. Either that or they'll become like Wally, -E, like just yeah, fat yeah. blobs. Yeah, yeah. So like uh, moving back to land with their like robot staff. Yeah, that's what yeah. I'm saying. Like with some of these technologies and stuff is you can have the best of both worlds, but yeah. you have to be disciplined enough not to fall for the distractions. Well, what if you want to be around, like like really around people? I feel like there's definitely a big part of the human population that just wants to be around people. I think that's the, the draw of cities. I think what's going to happen is, right, I'm, I'm looking at the best case scenario, is and since I moved to Georgia, what I've noticed is I'm thinking of like, I'll use Dahlonega as an example small country town in the mountains beautiful dope downtown Dahlonega Georgia yeah so right where there. I got married in like Canton Georgia and stuff you can be in the middle of nowhere and they have these little town squares where people come to meet yeah but then they live off and I think that there's business studies I forget the term of it 
But after 150 people, it's hard for people to stay connected or feel connected. It becomes like a cannibalistic, not like in a literal, but a metaphorical sense, a cannibalistic society where they don't care about each other. They're eating each other's like opportunities and things. Okay. I imagine smaller community, because I'm willing to guess you'd feel more connected if you had a hundred person community where you knew everybody. Probably granted, that's how gr- we evolved, right? Granted, that would get annoying. You don't want everybody in your business, but the reason, um, why honoring your word and stuff like that mattered so much. And the reason why it doesn't matter so much now is before you were in your community. If you're known as a liar, nobody fucks with you. Yeah. So you had to honor your shit. Yeah. Nowadays you can just move. Yeah. You just yeah. have your online community. Fuck yeah. it. Create my new persona. People just say things that they have no intention of doing now. Yeah. And I think that causes huge levels of distrust and mistrust. And I think that causes a lot of anxiety and depression too. Yeah. People don't trust themselves. Yeah. Yeah. They were definitely outside of my realm of expertise, but as just a thinker, I agree. All right. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent. All good. Um, all right. So what are, are some of the things like you learned? So kind of with cognitive confidence and things like that, how can somebody take that and apply that to their life, their everyday life? I think just getting involved. There's so much about intelligence that involves participation. You know, you got to participate in culture to know what the word empathy means. Take the, you know, clone Albert Einstein and throw him in the middle of the woods. That person's not going to be smart. That person's actually dead. That person's going to die. But, you know, have them raised in a society that is isolated. They won't become intelligent in the way you and I are talking about it. So I think you got to die. From a technological sense. Yeah, I don't know, like a participatory sense, right? To be considered intelligent. First of all, you have to speak the language, you know, that you and I learn to speak the language at a high level. Right. Right. So what I'm thinking now is Scott told me a story about when he was in Jamaica, um, somebody came up to him and was like, oh, you think you're intelligent? And then he made like, what do you make? What are you talking about when he made the door out of the bamboo tree? Yeah. And then some, some guy takes a bamboo tree and makes a door and was like you think you're intelligent can you do that yeah 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 so i think he's using he's talking about a different type of intelligence which i'm personally god awful at (laughs) i am not a manual person but i'm you know this like traditional linguistic intelligence reading cognitive confidence i've got all that and i think the original question was like how how can people take cognitive confidence take cognitive confidence yeah i think connecting to what they love okay. and diving in from a content perspective, watching videos. Re- I'm a huge believer in reading good stuff in your domain, reading that. good stuff in your domain. So if you're into business or investing and you want to make a lot of money, start with some Warren Buffett essays and then they're in your brain and they, um, you know, they, they say like in creativity and genius, you have to kind of master the basics before you make a breakthrough. Think about like Picasso's early work, which was more traditional before he be- he breaks through, you know? So you got to know the canon of whatever field you're in. If you want to go into business, know what bit like good business people have done, read about that, and then you can get creative and make your breakthrough. So I am not an expert in every field, but I help people. Like you can take your cognitive confidence, connect it to your passion, Find good stuff to read and consume in that field, and you're participating. You become intelligent. You build your skill. That made me think of the war of art. Oh, hell yeah. Where, like, you get good not because you're inspired, but because you keep working until inspiration comes. It takes time. You cannot become intelligent like that. That's why it's hard, you know? It takes consistent chipping away at it, showing up and doing the work. Is there a level of intelligence to grit? Because I think that's the biggest success factor. In the yeah. World. No, no matter what intelligence, I'm willing to guess grit is the underlying connection to who makes it to the top. Yeah. I have anecdotally noticed that that's definitely not measured on IQ tests. There is no grit measure. Because it takes time to measure. Yeah. You probably have to measure it over weeks, months, years. Um Right. And the thing with tests in general is they can't, by design, they can't last more than a couple hours, you know? It's just not practical. It's not economical. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Getting an IQ test, by the way, it's a one-on-one experience and it costs somewhere between three and $10,000. It's very expensive to get an IQ test. So what, um, so it's probably not, wouldn't even be worth it. I was going to say, but if you could track somebody's growth, that would probably indicate grit, right? Like, like growth on IQ or anything. Yeah. There are some cool studies, like some case studies of people's IQ dramatically changing. And it's almost always in the negative. Someone, you know, had a brain tumor removed and this part of their intelligence was dramatically affected, but this part wasn't. It's actually some of the value of IQ tests. Like if you want to really see, I'm getting this brain tumor removed, what's going to be affected? Is it going to be my vocabulary? Is it going to be my math ability? Depending on where the brain tumor is, it's usually something very specific and it's not all of your cognitive abilities. So there's a, a bunch of studies. I've read a couple of them where people's IQ goes down after brain tumor gets removed there's a lot that look at um there's some that look at at drug use over the long run like uh iq and marijuana use over the long run kind of an interesting study that was done in new zealand there so um yeah none of them that i can think of luke measure grit or even mention grit and they measure more for decrease than increase i yeah i have i cannot remember ever seeing a published paper on an increase in IQ. I actually applied for a grant at Columbia. I was going to take an IQ test three times and try and go up every time. And the hack was going to be, I was going to study the test. <laughs> I was like, watch, my IQ is going to go from here. It's going to go up and up and up. And they did Didn't they you get a perfect score on your SAT? I did, but that's not, that's a little different from IQ. It's a little shorter. It doesn't include all of the domains. It doesn't include like the knowledge domain. There's some similar stuff. The math is on there. The reading's on there. I have a really interesting idea for you off camera for a research project. Okay. It, it actually ties into something you brought up to me in the past, but now I have the people I would want in on it. Love it. Can you make it any vaguer for our listeners? Um, <laughs> efficacy, power of belief, and magic. Um Hopefully psychedelics. There you go. Okay, interesting. So, you know, taking the SAT on mushrooms. That would be interesting. One of the, I don't know if this is true or not, but one of the rumors circling around campus when I decided to take mushrooms that first time is that your IQ goes up over 200 when you take mushrooms. That, I don't think, has any scientific basis, but I, that intrigues As much of a mushroom as, lover as I am, that sounds... Sounds dubious. Yeah. But I want, I would, I wonder what would happen. Would I be able to take an IQ test... Or an SAT on mushrooms. I think I'd have a tough time like looking at the words Not, on the page. I think it'd be tough having a macro. Like I think you could do maybe a micro dose. Yeah, and and do just fine, probably. Yeah. You'd maybe do better because it does speed up your brain connectivity yeah. and stuff. Um, that there is plenty of rumors that it's huge now in Silicon Valley and yeah, microdosing is big in business. I'm noticing it amongst it's, my friends. It's that, a healthy yeah. alternative to Adderall. Yeah, a lot of people are on that three-day regimen. Like once every three days, uh, yeah. they microdose acid or mushrooms. Yeah, people do acid too. Yeah. Um, I enjoy acid, and it's pretty spiritual to me too, but I just like the natural plant of the mushroom. Right, yeah, yeah. But it, not, no knock to anybody um, on the entheogens. All right, so we're, we're kind of right at the end. Uh, oh, we're flying wow, that through. flew. Yeah, yeah. So we try to keep it tight. Um, but before we end it, I think... Somebody who is really interested in improving their intelligence and they're willing to, how long should they expect it to take and what are the necessary simplest steps? Yeah. First, connect to your passion. Like I don't, in my experience, forcing yourself to learn economics just because someone tells you you should doesn't really work. The fuel isn't there. If you love economics, great. So connect to your passion, step one. Step two, find a way to participate in the content that that people have put together in that field. So you could find great economists or great business people, read what they've written. Reading is a great way of doing it. Consume their video and anything you can do to keep that flame going. Join a group. If you're socially motivated, join a group on Facebook. Find people to tackle this together. And as you increase the amount of stuff you consume, your confidence just grows. You will, you will expand your mind and 
I don't know. I don't know how it depends. A couple months, you'll start to feel it and you'll start participating in ways you never, you never thought were possible. So, um, let's say I'm interested in psychology, read some Freud, read some, uh, like Jordan Peterson. Do I like Jordan Peterson? Yeah. yeah, I do like Jordan Peterson. I feel like that's a contentious thing to say nowadays, but I think he's which cool. is crazy. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't. I, I don't, I don't think, think he says mean, anything offensive. Yeah, I just think that's he's very means. direct, and I think he's got some really good points. I think he's great. Yeah. So follow. You know, give giving these people who are still alive, giving them a follow on Instagram and consuming their content, and you know, a couple months of consuming their content, and you're just thinking about it. So. I don't think it's as complicated as people make it out to be. I think along the way, you got to give yourself props for being like, oh yeah, like I am developing that interest and I am proficient. goes back to the beans. It goes back to the beans. You yeah. You got to talk positive to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And it's such a powerful thought to be like, I am proficient in this. I am good at this. And that, that kind of fuels it. So um, at the very least, you can give me a call and I'll, I'll give you a pep talk. Awesome. <laughs> Um, well, that's going to be it for, uh, for out of the cave with Dan Lerman. Um, you know, hopefully I'm sure you guys learned something. I'm hoping you did. And if not, you got a bunch of book recommendations. Love it. And, uh, keep your eyes open for whenever we get our little research project done. Love it. Luke, thanks so much. What a beautiful, beautiful setup. You've got a beautiful home that you've built. feels like we're in a Persian nightclub here and it makes me feel awesome. Um, I'll get a hookah next time. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was actually asking for one in my, in my rider, but um, really, really appreciate the opportunity. I could talk to you all day and I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation. Yeah, dude, come whenever you come to Atlanta, but we'll make a, we'll make something and I'll be out to LA. Much oh, and Dan also does comedy. So hopefully um, you can look him up. Can, can they find you anywhere? It's just danlerman.com. That's my, that's my tutoring website. I don't think I publish any comedy on there yet, although that's a cool idea. Awesome. We'll, we'll try to put like a little link when I send it to Jacob on the bottom and stuff. Love it. Cool. 